I got really interested in the idea of shock and its use as a political tool when I was in Iraq covering the occupation because there was this almost uh, triple storm of shock going on in that country. There was the first shock, which was the shock and awe invasion, which was followed immediately after uh, by economic shock therapy, more radical than had been attempted even in the former Soviet Union, just a complete overhaul of the economy overnight. That's at least what was attempted. And then there was this third shock, which came into play after people started resisting the occupation and those other two shocks. And that was the shock of torture. And I, and I became interested in why it was that the architects of the invasion and occupation of Iraq had chosen this as their metaphor. And what, what was it about the idea of shock that was so appealing to the, uh, to, to the people who wanted to remake Iraq? I started to actually go back, try to go back to the source of the, the metaphor of, of, of shock therapy. So I started reading about its use in psychiatric contexts and also its use in torture. And that led me to a really close reading of the declassified CIA interrogation manuals that were first published in 1963 and in, um, in the 80s, reprinted and have since been declassified. And looking at how the CIA talks about the importance of putting prisoners into a state of shock, because when they're in a state of shock, they're not able to protect their interests. They become childlike and regressed. The, the interrogation manuals are really obsessed with this idea of regression. So I started to think about how that had been applied on a mass scale. The, the exploitation of crisis and shock has very consciously been used by radical free marketeers. And you know, I, I start the book quoting Milton Friedman, something he wrote um, in, the, in 1982, only a crisis, real or perceived, produces real change. And he was admitting that his ideas, his, his vision of a radical privatized world couldn't be imposed in the absence of a crisis. He was referring to economic crises and economic crises have played that role of sort of softening the ground for the imposition of shock therapy. Then what starts to happen is the shocks need to get bigger in order for the disorientation to be greater. And that's where you have what I, what I call disaster capitalism. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, producer, audio editor, and host of Newsbeat where we shine a light on underreported and misrepresented social justice issues through our signature blend of independent journalism and hip-hop. Now, we touched upon so many important issues in our last full episode, Grifter's Paradise, Capitalism's Destruction of Afghanistan, that we felt it imperative to keep the conversation going a little bit, specifically focusing on this concept of what our guest, the journalist, author, and filmmaker Anthony Lowenstein, dubs Disaster Capitalism an expansion on the shock doctrine thesis of author and journalist Naomi Klein, who you just heard up at the top. Now, whether it's the devastation created by the U.S.-led wars in Afghanistan, Syria, and so many other corners of the globe, or the annihilation wrought by earthquakes, climate change, and other natural and man-made disasters devastating places such as Haiti, there are obscene amounts of money being made from all the resulting misery. That's right, obscene amounts of money being made from misery. 
So that's what we're going to get into. Now, before we dig into it, let me just remind y'all to subscribe to our free newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com for new episodes and bonus content and to rate and review us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, Apple, Spotify, wherever. Anyway, here's Anthony Lowenstein again, breaking all these blood profits down, explaining how corporations in so many cases have become more powerful than nation states and stressing how the gross lack of accountability enables these self-perpetuating horrors to continue. All right, here it is. This is disaster capitalism, making money from misery. So disaster capitalism, the way I define and how I wrote a book and film about this in the last decade is really people or corporations making money from misery. So people have always made money from disaster. That's not particularly new. There's cases throughout history of a corporation, an individual, a king, a rich person in, you know, ye olde England, whatever it may be, who is going to make money from disaster. That's not particularly new. What is new, though, is the globalised nature of that, particularly since 9-11. In Afghanistan, I did a lot of investigation on the role of both private military contractors making a fortune there in the last 20 years, but also the role of mining corporations who wanted to make a fortune in Afghanistan. In the archives of Afghanistan's geological department, the country's wealth mapped out by the Russians many years ago. Decades of war meant these minerals stayed out of reach, but now the Afghan government wants to show that the country is stable enough to invest in and safe from the corruption that dogged its first mining contract with the Chinese. For years, there's been much speculation and some study about huge mineral deposits in Afghanistan. But exploration of those minerals, everything from iron and copper to the lithium used in lightweight rechargeable batteries, got lost or sidetracked by decades of war. Many people aren't aware of this, but there is anywhere between one to four trillion dollars US of untapped minerals under the ground in Afghanistan. It's massive. Untapped. The Soviets discovered this when they, when they occupied it decades ago. The US discovered it years ago when they took over in 2001. Well, what happened was that there were geologists had looked at this, uh, but nobody had really been paying any attention. And late, um, the middle of last year, a Pentagon task force that had been working in Iraq on business development was transferred to Afghanistan. They began to look for what is it we can do here economically. And they stumbled across these geological reports that nobody had been in the upper reaches of the US government had been looking at. And they began to realize this is the answer that we've been looking at for something other than drug dealing in Afghanistan. And the Chinese are also very aware of it. Now the Taliban has taken over and their best new friends in the world are the Chinese there's a very good chance that these untapped minerals will actually get out of the country. And putting aside the climate change problems with actually doing that. Yesterday, the country's foreign ministry said China is ready for, quote, friendly and cooperative relations with the Taliban. Well, a Taliban takeover in Afghanistan represents uh, challenges for China, but also opportunities. And Beijing has been laying the groundwork for some time for these, quote unquote, friendly relations that they hope to establish with the group. Uh, this is a shift from the past. Back in 1996, China refused to recognize Taliban rule, closed their embassy there. This time, the embassy is remaining open, and officials told me yesterday that they are remaining in close contact and communication with the Taliban to ensure the safety of the few voluntary staff that they have left there. The problem that was happening in the last 20 years and how disaster capitalism is related to this is that it benefited 
a very, very few people at the expense of the many. So I was, for example, going to certain areas, literally an hour from Kabul, it's called Logar province. This is in 2015. And this was the heart of the insurgency. This is the Taliban, this was militants. It was very scary to go there. It's an hour from Kabul. So in theory, it should have been relatively safe, but in fact was not. And I went to visit there because one of the largest copper mines in the region was supposed to be there, run by the Chinese. Huge amounts of copper. And for years and years and years, this mine never got off the ground because of a rowing insurgency, because of corruption, because of an inability to actually get the copper out of the ground. But the impact of locals and the civilians that I spent time with was devastating. They'd been kicked out of their homes. They had been promised various riches from the mining company, better schools, better roads. It all came to naught. They were threatened constantly both by the Afghan military and also the Taliban and other militants. Their life was hell. And the US had spent huge amounts of money in the last 20 years to support this supposedly fledgling mining industry, supporting US corporations, Afghan corporations to try to mine these minerals. I'm talking about copper, gold, but also rare earths. And these rare earths include lithium, and many listeners will be aware that these are the sort of building blocks of all our technology, namely mobile phones, uh, computers, etc. And this has almost become like the new goal. In many parts of the world now, not least the um, Democratic Republic of Congo and other places, very, very poor countries. The minerals that are required to fuel our lifestyles, as I said, our iPhones or whatever it may be, come from these countries. Cobalt, mined by children's hands in dangerous and dirty conditions in the Democratic Republic of Congo, filmed by Sky News. Cobalt is one of 40 minerals that end up in smartphones, part of a bewilderingly complex global supply chain, from suppliers to smelters to factories, assembly lines. Finally, it ends up in our own hands. The clean, blank modernity of the digital revolution erases its grim origins. So I was there investigating what this meant on the ground. How are people trying to exploit these minerals? Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, at one point was trying to get in there. I spent some time investigating that. I did a big story about that a few years ago. He was forced to respond on global TV. It was a very surreal moment where he was essentially asked, are you trying to exploit the resources? I mean, he didn't really say no. So I took that as confirmation that it was yes. Not that I think he got much out of that, I might add, in the end, because virtually none of the resources were exploited in the last 20 years. But a lot of people made a lot of money in the process of trying to do that. So to me, disaster capitalism really is a global ideology that it was, has been turbocharged since 9-11. What the Bush administration did after September 11th, when the, the war on terror was declared, they essentially launched a new economy. The parameters of this economy were, were extraordinarily wide. This is an endless war, we were told, that the, the enemy could not be reasoned with, could not, there could be no diplomacy, there could be no discussion, there could only be attack, and that it would not end until evil was defeated everywhere. So if you think of it as a business plan, it could hardly be more profitable because basically what you're saying is we've got this new market, it's never going to end, and we have unlimited funds to finance this, this new market. So, it, so unlike a one-off war, what they were building was a permanent new part 
of the economy, a privatized security state. A news investigation is revealing how fast the growth has been of for-profit prisons being used to house immigrants. As William Brangham explains, while it has generated tremendous profits for the industry, it has also evidently caused hundreds of cases of alleged abuse and mistreatment in those facilities. There's another group of Americans that is looking to cash in on this crisis from Think Progress. Quote, share prices for two of the largest private prison firms have spiked sharply since an influx of unaccompanied migrant children crossing the border was reported this summer. And some investors in the GEO Group and the Corrections Corporation of America, which are the two biggest private prison companies in the country, are seizing on the opportunity for more profit from incarceration, according to recent comments to CNN Money. They continue, quote, investors see this as an opportunity. This is a potentially untapped market that will have very strong demand. The share of federal prisoners nationwide held in private prisons has surged from just 3% in the late 90s to more than 20% today. The biggest factor fueling growth is, you guessed it, immigration detention centers. Critics say the private prison business model encourages cost cutting and even slavery to boost its bottom line profits. And guess what? It's working. Since President Trump's election, shares for GEO have shot up 25%, while core civic stock is 12% higher. And I looked at it in a few other areas very briefly. One, how people are making huge amounts of money from the migrant crisis, the refugee crisis, whether it's in Europe or the US. What I mean by that is people running for-profit detention centres across the US, across Europe, in my country, Australia. People making money from the mining industry, whether it's in Europe, the US, Australia, Africa, Asia, elsewhere. Um, people making money, as I said, from war, whether it's Afghanistan or elsewhere. It's really any area where people are making obscene amounts of profit. Finally, I also investigated the reality of what this means for the aid industry. I spent a lot of time in the last decade in places like South Sudan, Haiti, and the aid industry does a lot of good work. I'm not demonizing all of it by any means, but there is a sector of it in the for-profit sector that is making a killing. For them, earthquakes, disasters, floods, climate change, war is great for business. The more, the better. And I was investigating in the context of after the Haitian earthquake in 2010, when there were roughly 100 to 300,000 Haitians who were killed in that earthquake, it has been a horrifying week here in Port-au-Prince, a week where the dead, the injured and the homeless are sharing a city largely reduced to rubble. A week where people had to fend for themselves, desperate for food and water, tending to their own injuries, burying their own dead. It is only now that aid is finally starting to arrive. And the Obama administration gave roughly 10 billion US dollars in supposedly support much of that money disappeared, didn't go to the Haitian people, went to US contractors who stayed in the US. It was a complete disaster. No one was ever held to account. And this, I think, is really what it comes down to on disaster capitalism. Virtually no one is ever held to account. This is why it keeps on happening. There's no political interest in holding anyone to account because ultimately, is someone's election going to be dictated 
by company X in your district making a fortune? Are you going to be a politician, Democrat or Republican, and come out strongly and say, I don't want this corporation making money in my district? Never happens because that politician wants those jobs in his or her district. This is what happens. Yes, there are some exceptions of some companies that have been charged with you know, price gouging, et cetera. But in general, this is like a, the Wild West in the US and elsewhere. And I thought it was important to sort of provide like a, I guess like a framework to understand, I think disaster capitalism is the ideology of our age. I think it's worsening. I think it is getting more serious. It's not just the US, this is a global problem. As I said, it doesn't really matter if Trump's in the White House or Biden. You could argue that Trump in some ways is more honest <laughs> about it. And what I mean by that is he's more, he's brazen. He sort of says, yeah, I'm out to make money. Yes, we should go into Iraq and steal the oil. Yeah, that's what we should do. Why not? Old expression, to the victor belong the spoils. You remember I always used to say, keep the oil. I wasn't a fan of Iraq. I don't want to go into Iraq. But I will tell you, when we were in, we got out wrong. And I always said, in addition to that, keep the oil. Now, I said it for economic reasons. But if you think about it, Mike, if we kept the oil, you probably wouldn't have ISIS because that's where they made their money in the first place. So we should have kept the oil. But okay. Maybe you'll have another chance. Now, I don't agree with that, to be clear, at all. But it's kind of more honest than what I think a lot of Democrats do, which essentially is do exactly the same thing, but they're couched in some kind of humanitarian language, which is normally bollocks, frankly. So I argue in the book and the film, Disaster Capitalism, that the corporation is in many ways more powerful than the state. When disaster strikes, countries are thrown into disarray. Into this gap, aid flows. The world believes aid is used to rebuild the lives of those most in need. But is this the truth? And when the film and book came out, some people challenged that idea and said, well, surely in many cases, the state ultimately is the one that makes a decision about whether company X or company Y can operate and do their thing. And that's true in general. But in many places around the world that I investigated, the government is either invisible or powerless. And in fact, ultimately, it is the company that makes the decision whether they decide to operate there. They may well need someone's you know, stamp on a piece of paper to operate from the airport, perhaps. But ultimately, the corporation is more powerful. And although I wasn't even looking in the book or the film at companies like the Amazons, the Googles, all those companies, which I would argue are Facebooks are inarguably more powerful than the nation state. I mean, you could argue that Apple, Facebook, Google are in some ways the titans of the world now. They are far more powerful than they than any government. They're mostly making their money offshore from the US where they pay little to no tax. That's I wasn't even looking at those companies at all. I was talking particularly about the companies that are making money from the issues I mentioned, aid industry, war, mining, refugee crisis. These are often our companies based in the US or Europe or elsewhere who are really aiming to find both a um, environment where they pay little to no tax. They have no concerns about accountability or any kind of transparency. They are maybe having to suffer now and then some bad press because a journalist or media organization does a story on them, but it virtually has no impact. But I do think that I, the corporation is increasingly more powerful than the state. And that's a concern 
because ultimately as a believer in a robust strong state then who ultimately controls the corporation i don't really believe in this idea of self-regulation self-regulation is a joke i mean the idea that companies say we can look at ourselves that's just nonsense yes there are some companies that maybe can do that sure but in the majority of cases if you're operating in afghanistan haiti south sudan iraq wherever it may be you're not capable of assessing yourself and frankly nor should you there needs to be some kind of assessment by either a UN body or the US government or someone but ultimately as i said many times there's no real interest in doing this you know ultimately the argument that says the corporation is more powerful than the state disturbs me greatly because i did not see with a few exceptions any serious attempt or demand or interest in much of the western world us europe uk or australia to actually hold these companies to account one other thing milton friedman said is that um when the, after the crisis hits the the kind of change will depend on the ideas that are lying around and that's really what the university of chicago economics department was was producing all of those years were ideas that would be lying around when the next crisis hit being prepared for that crisis it's not a question of of, of we don't need some vast conspiracy to say oh that 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 these crises are being deliberately planned and created so that they can be exploited now certainly there are some cases of deliberate shocks that were then exploited like I, I this the book starts with the coup in Chile which was obviously a planned attack that put a country into shock and then then, then was exploited for the sort of first classic case of economic shock therapy the war in iraq was of course planned as well and, and planned to be as shocking as possible called shock and awe so that it could be exploited but i think in most cases it's not about planning the original shock it's about being in an acute state of intellectual disaster preparedness so that when the crisis hits you're the ones who are ready with the ideas that are lying around oh, there it is disaster capitalism making money from misery horrific now once again I'm Newsbeat's host Manny Faces and on behalf of our teams I thank you for listening Now, I just want to remind you once again that if you enjoyed what you heard, you're moved or maybe even inspired, please subscribe to our incredible free newsletter for more drops and bonus content at newsbeat.substack.com. It is absolutely free and it helps us keep you informed. And you also know what else is absolutely free and won't cost a dime? Rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to your favorite pods. We appreciate that. Also free, checking out our previous episodes on the pod feed or at usnewsbeat.com. So there's that too. Once again, we want to also thank our guest, independent journalist, filmmaker, and author of the book, Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe, along with many others, Anthony Lowenstein, for sharing these important and underreported insights. Check out more from him, including his documentary, Disaster Capitalism, at AnthonyLowenstein.com, and on Twitter, at A-N-T Lowenstein, A-N-T-L-O-E-W-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. He's also recently co-founded an investigative news outlet called Declassified Australia. So definitely check that out as well at declassifiedaus.org. Once again, this is Manny Faces on behalf of the Newsbeat, Mori Creative Studios, and Manny Faces Media production teams. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon. Peace.